Even when Abraham sins, the promise and plan of God is still in effect. He carries inside him the seed of redemption. And therefore, how people respond to Abraham functions such that either blessings or curses are attracted to them. Now, by the way, this same principle remains in effect in the New Testament. Yes, all the promises of God land on Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, including this one, meaning that ultimately how people respond to Jesus Christ determines whether they experience blessings or curses for all eternity. But the principle of that is extended to us, to those of us who are in Christ. That's the meaning of the parable of the sheep and the goats. The punchline of that parable is that how people respond to the least of these my Brethren is taken as how they responded to Christ. There's a link there between Jesus and even the least of his people. And and the outcome is very serious. The outcome is blessing or cursing. Listen very carefully. To those who did not bless the least of these his brethren, Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed. Hear that word into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But to those who did bless the least of these, his brethren, Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 34, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Are you hearing that? Right? Cursing and blessing. Those are the stakes. Those have been the stakes since Genesis chapter 12. Welcome to Into the Word with Paul Carter. I'm your host, Woody Woodland. I think it would be fair to say that Genesis 12 is one of the most important chapters in all the Bible. It introduces us to the family of faith, and it introduces us to the principle by which people will know either the blessing or the curse of Almighty God. So this is a foundational story, and here to tell us more about that is our Bible teacher at Into the Word, Pastor Paul Carter. Your word is a lamp unto my feet. Hope you have your Bible open in front of you today to Genesis chapter 12. This is beyond a doubt one of the most important chapters in the Bible. You've heard me say now a few times that the book of Genesis has two parts. Chapters 1 to 11 tell us the story of God and the world. Chapters 12 to 50 tell us the story of God and the family of Abraham. So chapter 12 is a hinge in the book of Genesis. But more than that, it's a hinge or a turning point in the Bible as a whole. There are a few very important shifts in the Bible, and this is definitely one of them. In chapters 1 to 11, God is dealing with the world as a whole. In Genesis 12, he begins dealing with one particular family. Peter Gentry and Stephen Wellham put it this way, God intends to use Abram and his family as the instrument of rescuing and restoring his broken creation, close quote. So remember back to Genesis 3.15 to see how this all works. After the fall, God says to the devil in the hearing of our first parents, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring or your seed and her offspring, her seed, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Now, Scholars call that the Protevangelium, the first giving of the gospel. That is the gospel in seed form. In very few words, it contains 
the hope of the world. All we know in Genesis 3.15 is that God will intervene by means of a child born to a woman. He will take up our cause and he will defeat our enemy at some cost to himself. Matthew Henry says here that three things are promised. The birth of Christ, the suffering of Christ, and the triumph of Christ. That is the gospel in miniature. And then as the story of the Bible rolls on, more and more detail and specificity is added to that tiny little seed. And in Genesis chapter 12, we get our first major ad. God made that promise seemingly into the air in Genesis 3.15. But now, here we learn in Genesis chapter 12 that the promise is going to come through a particular race of people. That child who's going to be born, who's going to take up our cause and defeat our enemy at some cost to himself, he's going to be a child of Abraham, right? He's, he's going to be a Jew. And, and the blessing that will undo the curse is going to come through this family and come ultimately through that child. This is the first major narrowing of the purpose and promise in the Bible. Now, if you were to sort of trace the storyline out on a piece of paper, it would kind of look like an hourglass lying on its side. The promise is very broad at the very beginning of the Bible. It, it's, it's wide. It's as wide as humanity in general. But, but then here in Genesis chapter 12 is our first narrow. Here, here it begins to narrow in. We know now that it's all going to come through one particular race, the people of Abraham. And then at the at the end of the book of Genesis, the promise narrows once again. We learn that the blessing will come through the tribe of Judah. So there's your second narrow. And then later in the Old Testament, we learn that it will come through a particular house in the tribe of Judah, the house of David. There's a further narrow. You can, you can see it getting narrower and narrower or, or more specific and more specific, if you like, as you read across the Old Testament. And then in the New Testament, the promise and purpose of God comes to a focus and a climax in the person and work of Jesus Christ, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's why the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. There's where the promise and purpose of God is at its narrowest, right in Jesus Christ. Everything in the Old Testament has been working towards that narrow point. It's all been focused there right? This is the child, Jesus Christ. He's the child born of the woman who comes to take up our cross, to defeat our enemy at cost to himself, and to bring us home and return us to our original design and calling. Thanks be to God. That's the narrow point. But then from there, the promise and purpose of God widens out again to embrace people from every tribe, tongue, and nation on the earth. So it goes from broad to very, very narrow again, to very, very broad. That's the sideways hourglass shape of the biblical storyline, the story of God's redemptive purpose and promise in the world. From wide to narrow to Jesus to the Jews first and then out to all the people of the world. That's the shape of this story. And in Genesis chapter 12, we see the first significant shift, the first narrowing of the promise. Here we learn that God will undo the curse and bring back the blessing through the family and line of Abraham. Hear now the word of the Lord, beginning at verse 1. 
Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you. And I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you. And him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abram went, as the Lord had told him, and Lot went with him. Abram was 75 years old when he departed from Haran. Now, we could talk for a long time about those four verses, but in a program like this, we've got to move fast. So let me just point out a couple of things. First of all, in Hebrew, there are just two commands, two imperatives in this paragraph. God tells Abram to go and to be a blessing. It is very hard to capture that in an English translation, but those are the two commands. And then those commands are supported by promises. In order to do what God tells him to do, God has to give him certain grace and help. And that's what I want you to see. God commands us to do impossible things all the time. Have you ever heard that phrase, God will never give you more than you can handle? Okay, well, that's total garbage. God gives us more than we can handle all the time, but then he shows up with more grace than we could ever have asked for, hoped for, or imagined. That's what faith is, believing that God will give what he commands. Now, I also want you to notice that in some way, uh, we're, we're going to understand this better over time, but in some way, Abraham and his family and his work of bringing blessing into the world will function as some kind of divider within the human species. Those who respond positively to Abraham and to what God is doing through Abraham will be gathered back into blessing. Those who resist him and it will be pushed further out into curse and darkness. There's some kind of principle of blessing and curse operating inside Abraham. And then lastly, just notice the first couple of words in verse four. It says, so Abram went. Faith is always about responding actively to the revealed word of God. God said, go. Abraham went. Okay. That is faith in a nutshell. Verse 5 says, And Abram took Sarai, his wife, and Lot, his brother's son, and all their possessions that they had gathered, and the people that they had acquired in Haran, and they set out to go to the land of Canaan. When they came to the land of Canaan, Abram passed through the land to the place at Shechem, to the oak of Moreh. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. Then the Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. We talked about how God enables that which he commands. Well, he's told Abraham to become a great nation. To state the obvious, if you want to become a nation, then you have to have a land. And God promises here that he will provide that land. He will give this land to the people of Abraham. Verse 7 goes on to say, So he built there an altar to the Lord who had appeared to him. Now let's just stop here and notice something. Worship responds to what God says and what God gives. That's what worship is. It is response. When God reveals, when God speaks, when God gives, his people respond in worship. That's the rhythm of faith, right? In, in the New Testament, in the church, the central 
ordinance of the church is communion. Its other name is the Eucharist, which means thank you. Worship is response to what God has said and what God has done, Old Testament anew. Verse 8 says, From there he moved to the hill country on the east of Bethel and pitched his tent with Bethel on the west and Ai on the east. And there he built an altar to the Lord and called upon the name of the Lord. And Abram journeyed on, still going towards the Negeb. Now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. Now this is a very interesting development. God didn't tell Abram to go to Egypt. He told him to go to Canaan. So why does Abram go to Egypt? Well, I suppose the obvious answer is because there was a famine in the land of Canaan. Things were hard at that time. It looked like God wasn't blessing at that time. So Abraham modified the plan. And that is generally when things start to go bad. The Bible is very honest here about the strengths and weaknesses of Abram. Abraham isn't Jesus. All right, that's important for us to understand. Abraham needs Jesus. Okay, Abraham is a sinner who is saved by grace through faith, just like you and me. So the Bible tells us the whole story here, the good parts, the bad parts, the victories, and the defeats, because we can learn from all of it. Pastor Paul, I'm glad you made that point, because I think sometimes as Bible readers, we aren't sure what we should do with these Old Testament heroes. They all seem to have tragic flaws, but on the other hand, the Bible does tend to point to them as examples, so help us understand that. Yeah, I don't know who said it first, but I've heard it said many times that the Bible is not a story about good guys and bad guys. It is a story about bad guys that need Jesus. And I think that is exactly right. There's only one perfect person in the Bible, and that is Jesus. Everyone else is a sinner in need of salvation. And Abraham very much fits that bill. He struggles with fear and with honesty. And as we'll see a little bit later, he struggles with his wife. Sometimes he treats her voice as if it were the voice of God. So he's definitely not perfect. He's not Jesus. He needs Jesus. But he is a man of faith. And that's what we're supposed to learn from his story. Abraham is called the father of faith, not because he was the first person to have faith, not because he invented faith, but because his story so perfectly illustrates what faith is and what faith does. Abraham is an illustration of faith, not the object of faith. The only proper object of faith is the Lord Jesus Christ. But the Old Testament is really the authorized family narrative of faith. It tells us what faith looks like. It shows us what happens when we don't walk by faith. So we always have to ask whether a particular story is being given as a positive or negative example. Not everything in the Bible, of course, is prescriptive. A lot of it is descriptive, meaning that we're being told the truth about what people did but we're not being told to do what they did. We're being shown the consequences of the decisions that they made. And this is like when you, as the younger brother, get to learn from the mistakes made and the discipline applied to your older brother. That's what this is. And as a younger brother, I appreciate that. Yeah, you know, I'll have to take your word for that. So it is appropriate for us to draw out ethical lessons from these stories, in addition to the main lessons about the nature and object of faith. Is that right? Yes, absolutely. In fact, I think we have perhaps overreacted to the excessive moralistic preaching of the 1980s by almost outlawing all legitimate 
ethical teaching. And that's unfortunate. Unpack that for us a little. What do you mean by excessively moralistic preaching? Well, when I was a kid, every sermon seemed to be about how we should dare to be a Daniel or, or how we should be wise like Nehemiah or how we all need to find our five smooth stones like David so that we could slay the giants in our lives. But all of those stories actually are ultimately about Jesus. Jesus is the one who slays the giant, and we get to share in his victory. So those sermons probably needed to have landed on Jesus somehow, but that isn't to say that there shouldn't have been a point or two about courage or wisdom or resilience or whatever. That is part of why these stories were preserved. The Apostle Paul says that. He says, now, these things happen to them as an example but they were written down for our instruction on whom the end of the ages has come. That's 1 Corinthians 10, 11. So I think there has to be a balance and that balance should seek to hold together the main, the ultimate focus, but should also bring out these ethical implications when they're obviously there in the text. All right, yeah, that's super helpful. Let's jump back into our story at verse 11. Verse 11 tells a story. It says, when he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you're a woman, beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, but they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you, and that my life may be spared for your sake. Now, first of all, this is just bad husbandry, but some of us struggle with this story, right? Before we get to the point of it, some of us struggle with the details, because we know that part of the Abraham miracle is that he has a child so late in his life. And, and so we think, how in the world could the beauty of Sarai be a problem when she's got to be in her 60s here, for crying out loud? Well, remember where we are in the story of humanity. We're, we're at the point when the lifespans are contracting. They're shrinking back down to something similar to what we know now. But at this point in the story, they're still about twice what they are in our day and age. So Derek Kidner says here, Sarai's 60s would therefore presumably correspond with our 30s or 40s, and her 90 years at Isaac's birth with perhaps our late 50s. All right, so it's still a miracle when Sarah has a baby in her late 50s, to use our terms, but it's not a miracle that men found her attractive in her 30s or 40s, again, to use our terms. So don't trip up on that. The teaching point in this paragraph has to do with Abram's dishonesty. Now, technically speaking, he didn't lie per se. Sarah was his half-sister, right? They had the same father, different mothers. Again, this is before the law, and this is early on in the human story, so there's nothing unusual about marrying a half-sister. The point for our purposes is that Abraham, having stepped outside of the commandment of God, feels that he must see to his own security by means of deception and deceit. And the lesson is that one sin will almost always lead to another. Once you stop obeying the word of God, you will find yourself on a very slippery slope leading into more and more deception, rebellion, and sin. Nobody ever commits one sin, okay? One sin always begets another. Verse 14 goes on to say, When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh, and the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, 
he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this you have done to me? Why did you not tell me that she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. Well, here we learn something very important. Even when Abraham sins, the promise and plan of God is still in effect. He carries inside him the seed of redemption. And therefore, how people respond to Abraham functions such that either blessings or curses are attracted to them. Now, by the way, this same principle remains in effect in the New Testament. Yes, all the promises of God land on Jesus Christ, thanks be to God, including this one, meaning that ultimately how people respond to Jesus Christ determines whether they experience blessings or curses for all eternity. But the principle of that is extended to us, to those of us who are in Christ. That's the meaning of the parable of the sheep and the goats. The punchline of that parable is that how people respond to the least of these my brethren is taken as how they responded to Christ. There's a link there between Jesus and even the least of his people. And and the outcome is very serious. The outcome is blessing or cursing. Listen very carefully. To those who did not bless the least of these, his brethren, Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 41. Depart from me, you cursed, hear that word, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. But to those who did bless the least of these, his brethren, Jesus says this, Matthew 25, 34. Come, you who are blessed by my Father. Inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. Are you hearing that? Right? Cursing and blessing. Those are the stakes. And those have been the stakes since Genesis chapter 12. There is a principle of division unto blessing or cursing. That principle operates within the family of Abraham. That principle climaxes in the life and death of Jesus Christ. It continues to operate within the community of those who are called by his name and who preach his glorious gospel. Old Testament and new, this is life and death. This is blessing and cursing. And this is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Amen. You made a connection there at the end of the chapter between Abraham, Jesus, and the church. I think most of us understand the connection between Abraham and Jesus, but help us understand how that extends out to the church, to men, women, boys, and girls who believe in Christ. Yeah, that's a fantastic question. Uh, There's a sense in which the shape of the biblical storyline is kind of like an hourglass or an hourglass on its side. I don't know if that still makes sense. I don't know if people know what hourglasses are, but if you do, then visualize an hourglass on its side. It, It begins fairly wide, as wide as the nation of Israel in the story in the Bible, that the nation, oh, actually, I'm going to do that paragraph again. 
Yeah, that's a fantastic question. There's a sense in which the shape of the biblical storyline is kind of like an hourglass or an hourglass on its side. It begins fairly wide, as wide as the nation of Israel, the nation that comes from Abraham. But then as the story goes along, it starts to narrow. We discover that the blessing of God will ultimately come into the world through the family of David. One family that is inside, that is smaller than the nation of Israel as a whole. And then later in the story, the promise gets really narrow, as narrow as one man, the God-man, Jesus Christ. As the Apostle Paul says in 2 Corinthians 1.20, for all the promises of God find their yes in him. That is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. So all the promises of God, all the promises in the Old Testament, eventually come to fulfillment in one person. They all land climactically on the person of Jesus Christ. He is the vehicle of blessing. He is the one we've all been waiting for. Paul talks about this all the time. In Galatians 3.16, he puts it this way. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to your offspring, who is Christ, close quote. So the story at this point is as narrow as one man, Jesus Christ. But then immediately it begins to widen out again. Later in that same chapter in Galatians, Paul says, and if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. So now anyone and everyone who is in Christ through faith is also the seed of Abraham and is also a child of blessing. And as the story of the sheep and the goats makes clear, what you do to a child of blessing has an impact on how and where you will spend your eternity. A positive attitude, a loving attitude toward the people of God, toward Christians, is taken in the Bible as an indication of real and saving faith. 1 John 3.14 says, We know that we have passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Well, let me add my yes and amen to that. What a privilege it is to be part of this great story and to be part of this great family through faith in our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Can't wait to hear more about that. And as always, if you're looking for more Bible teaching from Pastor Paul, you can find that over at intotheword.ca. You can also connect with Pastor Paul and other Bible readers on the Into the Word Facebook page. Just enter Into the Word into the search bar. And we'll see you right back here next Sunday morning as we continue our journey together through the whole counsel of God. See you then. Your word is a lamp unto my feet.